0: This is God's word to us, it's so good. It's so good that God is realistic and is honest about what we face. We're gonna look at the schemes of evil, really that last phrase there today of verse 11. The schemes of the devil. There is a devil and he is our enemy. It's a little bit of a review from last week but just wanna kinda give you a sense of what we're up against. We have an enemy and his name is Satan. That is his proper name and the devil is his descriptive name. Just a brief word about Satan, because uh, because I didn't give him necessarily a whole time, a lot of time last week. But remember that Satan was an angel, and that means he uh, he was a ri- he was not a rival to God. That is important to understand, right? In, in contrast, think about Star Wars, which is based around kind of Eastern religious thinking. In Star Wars, and that kind of thinking, that evil is a force, and that evil and good always must go together. That they always go together, and in fact, they require each other. That yin and that yang kind of idea. But the, the devil is not God's opposite in the sense that he is a rival God. He is a created being, and that is good news. Uh, he is not necessary for God to exist. But though, even though he was not a rival to God, he desired to oppose God and to be one the one who is worshipped as God, and so he rebelled against God. And when he rebelled... He took many angels with him, and he, they formed that, those evil angels into an angelic army, and then Satan came after God's image bearers and after God's creation, seeking to destroy God's glory as it's seen in our face, in the face of image bearers. And he tempted Adam and Eve and led them into joining him in rebellion against God, and that is the history of mankind. And so we have willfully sided with Satan against God. And in doing so, Satan has usurped God's authority and he has asserted his dominion in the world. The scriptures actually say that he is the ruler of the power of the air. He is the ruler of this world. And the whole world lies under the snare, the trap, and the rule of the evil one. And so, even though Satan is not God, he is not omnipotent and he is not omniscient, Nonetheless, he does exercise incredible power in this fallen world. And he promotes evil of every kind in the nations, in the power structures, and in the hearts of men. He promotes every kind of evil. And what we saw last week is that in this evil one, along with his host of evil, that he is now making war against the kingdom of God. There is indeed a war out there. A yin and and a yang is not what we have, but there is a war. The kingdom of God versus the kingdom of evil. And so our point last week would be boiled simply down to this. You are in a war. You are, you are part of this world. And you are living in a war zone. And so if you are in a war, it is important to understand the tactics of your enemy. So we're going to take it from what was about 30,000 foot view last week and kind of try to bring it down to earth a little bit more. That you have an enemy it says this in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Schemes that like we could be the kind of an idea of a strategy. You know, Sun Tzu and his great work on war. He was the military general in China that wrote the book, The Art of War. And one of the, what is one of his dictums? Know your enemy. So the biblical term here, scheme, is that, is, that means that there is a large-scale, systematic plan that he has for you and for your household and for this world, and he is strategizing with intent. And so that is what we're going to look at this morning. In war, I actually spent a little bit of time looking at this this week, and so I spent some time on some, some odd military history sort of pages looking at the difference between strategy and tactics. And strategy is the overall aim, the primary way in which you want to win the war. And so we're going to start with the strategy of the enemy, and then we're going to look second at the tactics of the enemy. So first, the strategy. The strategy of the enemy. Here's what he seeks to do. The devil is working, and his main strategy is to deceive. That's what he wants. The one basic in the Greek word for devil is, the word is diabolos, which means deceiver. Jesus himself describes Satan in this way in John chapter 8 verse 44 he said he was a murderer from the beginning from the beginning and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him when he lies he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies Jesus says he is the father of lies all that is untrue spews forth from him that when the evil one speaks his native tongue is untruth it is lies he deceived Adam and Eve in the garden. Deception is his specialty. If Satan were to open up a store, it would be called Lies Are Us. In his deception, what he is seeking to do is to blind you and I to the truth. But he is willing to use the truth and to twist the truth and to use half-truths in order to control and to manipulate. And the result of this activity is that he holds men in captivity. So that they believe that which is not true. So they don't believe in Jesus, so that they're dupes of his deviousness. And what is his destruction in his deceit? Or what is his object in his deceit? It is your destruction. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says this, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. You ever watch the History Channel or the Discovery Channel? And they, they follow the, the, the clump of gazelles, and there're they're a family of them, and you see the little gazelles being born, and they're wandering across the Serengeti, and they're there kind of finding places to, to go get water. And then you see the baby gazelle gets separated from the herd. And there's a lion there prowling after that gazelle. Well, guess what? You know who you are in that special? You're the gazelle, and Satan is the lion. And his ultimate desire is to lead us away from God into sin, into misery, into death, into ultimate separation from God for all of eternity. That is his longing. And how does he achieve this objective? What does he most want to deceive us and keep us from? The truth that he most wants to keep us from is the truth of the gospel found in Jesus Christ. In other words, more than anything, the evil one wants to hinder the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth and the effect of the gospel for your joy in life, in your own heart, in your life. He blinds the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the truth. I'm going to show you a number of passages about this from first and second from second corinthians this morning first it begins here in second corinthians 4 verse 4 it says this in their case the god of this world has blinded the mind of unbelievers to keep from them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Jesus Christ who is the image of God Remember the parable of the sower as the, as, the, as the seed of the gospel is being spread out upon the ground? One of the seeds, one of the, 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 one of the ways in which the, the seed does not grow up and bear fruit is it falls on ground that is then plucked by the birds of the air. And then Jesus will explain that parable to his disciples and he said that that explains that when the word of God is sown and yet the evil one keeps to, comes and snatches the seed away from the heart of man. And understand that when he deceives, when he deceives in this way, yes, there are ways in which he comes blatantly with warning lights signaling. But most often, he likes to come deceptively, subtly, quietly. We we tend to think of Satan's domination as looking like a a deranged, demon possessed figure, but it looks far more innocuous. He comes and he whispers, not things that are truly terrible, but just simply things that would lead you away from living life with Jesus. Ah, you you don't need Jesus. You just simply need more of your own righteousness. You can do life without God. Is this really all there is? You actually know how life works best. Sometimes he roars like a lion, but more often he's subtle as a serpent. And so Satan comes at you, not with the lights of the red light district, At least not usually at first. But he comes to us to destroy, to distort us with words that sound wise and good. In other words, Satan is happy for you to believe a gospel, a false gospel, a gospel that is only half true. It says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3 and 4, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from sincere and pure devotion to Christ for if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed or if you received a different spirit from the one you received or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. What is Paul saying? the way in which Jesus would love to destroy your life and rob you of joy is to rob you of a reliance upon Jesus. And he is saying that not every Jesus that's proclaimed out there is the real Jesus, and not every spirit that you encounter is the Holy Spirit. There are demonic spirits, and they, they, they come into the church dressed up as something that is light and beautiful, but they are not. And not every gospel you hear is a true gospel. There will be people who talk about Jesus and do things in the name of Jesus, but it's not the Jesus of the Bible. And the evil one will hinder the gospel, not just by affecting the hearers, but also affecting the speakers by giving them a different gospel. In fact, this is actually why Paul, whenever he he asked for prayer, and we're going to see this at the end of this whole series, we're going to cap it off with a look at prayer as a means of fighting against the temptation of the evil one. But what is the number one thing Paul asked for prayer for himself? Is that in the face of persecution and the temptations of the evil one, that he would be bold and courageous to continue to proclaim the true gospel. Further on down in the passage, Paul actually says this. He says in verse 13, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And so this makes me wonder, in 21st century evangelistic America, how would the the evil one disguise himself today? The devil seldom attacks openly. He prefers darkness to light, but he is happy. He's happy to clothe himself in light so that he might enter the church and enter our world in unsuspecting ways. He is a dangerous wolf. Satan is capable of calling people to high morals and great values, but ultimately he does so in order that you may rely on Christ less. He wants you to proclaim your own righteousness so that you don't look to the righteousness of Christ. Or there's an amoral view of, look at this as well. Did you know that everyone in the world is seeking to be righteous? Even those who, they want their sins proclaimed, that which they do is evil, declared good. Why? Because they still, deep down, desire a righteousness of their own. And therefore, that's why the proclamation of the world today is, call that which, which, we, that which we do, that, we, that you say is evil, I want you to call it good. Because what do they want? a righteousness of their own. And so anyone would come and proclaim a gospel that say, no, 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 no. All, all your evil is actually righteous because that makes you need Jesus even less. Paul says this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, that if we, cannot, if we can be justified by the works of the law, then Jesus died for nothing. You don't need Jesus. And therefore, you don't need Jesus by avoiding sin or avoiding at least the acknowledgement that you do sin. And in the end, the evil one wants to rob you and destroy you by robbing you of joy in Jesus. John chapter 10, verse 10 says this, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come. A contradiction to the evil one, I have come, so they may have life and have it abundantly. And who is life? Jesus. There is nothing the evil one wants more than for you to not have Jesus. Broadly speaking, the evil one seeks to destroy every opportunity you have to experience the goodness of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is his aim. Deception is his strategy. Destruction is his goal. May the believer beware. What are his tactics, though? So that's the strategy. Now let's bring it down even further. What are his tactics? In military parlance, you see the strategy may be hey, we're gonna take, first we're gonna take North Africa, and then we're gonna attack the underbelly of of Nazi Germany before we attack head on and cross the channel. But then when we do cross the channel, what are the tactics? Here are the things that we're gonna use. We're gonna have squads that go after this this pillbox, we're gonna have people who try to open this road. It gets more and more defined. So, what are the tactics of the enemy? The evil one, I'm gonna give you another word picture here. He likes to box. He's a wrestler and a boxer. And he uses the one two punch. A one two punch. You know what? A boxer, when they're trying to get you off balance, what do they do? They jab. And then what do they do? Then they uppercut. What's the jab? The jab, the tactics of the enemy, is temptation. And temptation can come in many forms. The evil one doesn't only come at us directly and with clear whispers towards sin. He likes to set you up over a long period of time. And here's one of the ways. There's a couple ways in which he seeks to do this. One of the ways is affliction. Affliction. We could call it suffering. But this could be affliction that is emotional or physical. And this is something that in our, in our very medicated Western world we don't see as often we don't think about. Did you know that Satan can inflict people with sickness? Let me, because this is so foreign to us, let me give you a couple passages that show this. Jesus heals a woman in Luke chapter 13 and says this. He says, ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? She was sick for eighteen years. And then when Peter was preaching to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, it says this in verse 38 how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed, healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Then we see one of the one of the most profound pictures of what the evil one does is in the very beginning of the book of Job, where he goes to God and he says, Job follows you, but what happens if he gets sick? And what happens if I afflict his life? Will he still proclaim your name? And what is one of the things that he does to Job? He brings emotional pain. He brings suffering and loss into his life. And he inflicts, afflicts Job with sores on his body. The enemy will inflict us with physical sickness, with emotional pain and suffering. Now, understand this. This is not necessarily all the time. Every sniffle that you get is not necessarily the work of the evil one. But he is happy to use these things as part of his demonic affliction in your life. If you're a Christian, you cannot be possessed by Satan. But the Holy Spirit is the one who fills you, and if he fills you, you cannot be possessed by anything else. But he can influence and affect your life. He can attack your life. So he can bring fear and anxiety and anger he can afflict your marriage and your children and your family. He does abuse and he does terrorize. He can do this in your dreams. He can do it in your waking moments. And why does he seek to afflict? See, he seek to afflict you physically? That is not his ultimate end goal. Why would he want to afflict you? So that he might sow the seed of the lie that God is not good to you. What's one of the first things that, God, that the evil one does when he comes to Eve? Ah, did God really say, how dare God keep something from you? God doesn't want good for you. There it is. So he's willing to set you up with affliction so that in a moment of weakness, physical or emotional, he may sow the seeds of deception that undercut your trust in the Lord. Here's a second way. He jabs and tempts is simply to, as what we mostly think of as, as temptation, is he incites sinful desires. James chapter 1 verse 14 says this, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. We talked about that last week very briefly. That's the flesh. That deep down, we desire things that are contrary to God. But you know who is happy to sit there and scratch the itch of your sinful desires? The evil one. He can't make you sin, and so we can't say, the devil made me do it. But he does love to tickle us and to tickle those desires. And he does so by making sin look good and hiding the destructive effects of sin. Thomas Brooks, who's a Puritan, wrote a very long, long book with a very long title. It's called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. But it's an incredibly practical book on how to fight Satan's... Um, and do spiritual warfare against Satan's attacks. But in the midst of this very difficult book to read, there are some things that are quite simple. He says this, Satan always presents the bait, but he always hides the hook. Tempting us with things that look good and feel good, but ultimately lead to our destruction. He promotes pride and lust and greed and anger and sexual sin and covetousness and gossip and he'll dangle it out there and he'll make it look good and it will feel good for a moment but it is laced with arsenic. It is deadly. And he doesn't play fair when he does this either. He waits for you to be weak. It says the devil prowls around like a roaring lion. Does a roaring lion attack you head on when you're in a place of strength? No. He waits for the weak one to get separated from the pack. How does a lion prowl? The lion hides. The lion is patient. The lion looks for weaknesses. The lion looks for opportunities. One of the most grievous things I walked through in the last year was with a brother who walked in this church for years and years and then had a job that took him in such a place that he was disconnected from Christian community. And know what he also experienced? He experienced some physical affliction. And in that moment, the evil one sowed the seeds of distrust, and he walked away. He walked away. The evil one does not play fair. He doesn't play fair. And he's also relentless. He stalks his prey day and night. don't think, listen, have you found this, particularly in those habitual, addictive sins, that you resist the evil one one day, and does he leave you alone? No, he just regains strength and comes back the next day don't think that on this side of heaven, the evil forces of this world will let up. He longs to steal your joy, to steal your trust and your assurance in Jesus Christ. A man came to a pastor one day, and he said, hey, pastor, I need you to pray that I'll never be tempted again. And and the pastor's response was simply, so you want me to pray that you'll die? Because that's the truth of it, because he will attack you and attack you and attack you. One of the most moving things Tim Keller, who passed away just a couple weeks ago, one of the most moving things is when he was diagnosed with terminal cancer, as he said that it sharpened his senses to the fight he was in with the evil one. And he said, and what he asked for was prayer, that he would resist sin. Because when we are struggling physically, when we are to the very end of our days, even with terminal cancer, he longs, he desires to come after you and to crush you. And understand this his temptation is subtle. We must not imagine that open persecution and open temptation are his commonest weapons. Oh, he uses them, but they are not his commonest weapons. He prefers to seduce us into compromise, into small steps of deception, into error. He uses those things that are good in order to sow that which is untrue and that which is evil. He is happy to be patient and to play the long game. You know, there's things in your life if you were to look at the trajectory of your life and you were to look back, one of the things that you might be able to see is how the evil one has been sowing seeds of destruction in your life from the very earliest days. One of the things they get to witness is is the the underbelly of when life for people that they thought was working so well, in which those things that they had made life quote-unquote work for them, in which the effects of those things they thought were going to give them life, ultimately they found was an idol and that it destroys them. What are those things that make life work for you that are separate from Jesus? Is it your ability to control your environment and the relationship of everyone around you? Is it your incredible ability to go to work and make money so that you can kind of give life in order to your world? What is it? It is, what it is, is that is rotting wood and he is waiting for the day in which you step on a piece in which he can let it fall. He is, he is writing a story. An anti-redemption story is what he's seeking to write and he takes the long view. So that's the jab. That's the jab. Affliction and to incite our sinful desires. What's the uppercut? Well, the uppercut of the tactics of the enemy is this. Accusation and condemnation. Once he's got you, back on your heels and following backwards, he's ready. Here comes the uppercut. The devil works to accuse. In Zechariah chapter 3, it's a minor prophet if you've not heard of it. Zechariah chapter 3, there's a priest named Joshua, and he is standing before the Lord in judgment. And next to Joshua, standing, he has a picture of the evil one standing and accusing him of his sin. The evil one is called, Satan is called the accuser of the brothers. This is who Satan is. That's one of his names, the accuser. He is the finger pointer. He is the cosmic cattler. That's who he is. And understand this, the accuracy of his proclamations of your sin, of his accusations against you, it is largely irrelevant whether they're true or not. And in fact, actually, often it's when his accusations are true that he's at his greatest power. Because what he ultimately wants is not simply to accuse, but to a so condemnation in your life. He seeks to shame you by accusing you of something that is unlovely about yourself, a weakness, a frailty, a sin. And he accuses God's children constantly for our failures, constantly making the case that God should condemn you. That we should not be loved by God because of our failures and because of who we are. That we should be cast from God for our offenses and that we should not be allowed to be a part of God's family. This is what he wants. This is why he is setting you up. And we feel these accusations and they produce shame and they produce insecurity in our life. And what does that produce in your relationship with God? What does Adam and Eve do when they feel insecurity and shame over their sin? What do they do? God comes to the garden and calls them by name and they cover themselves up. They make a lie, a false version of self, and they hide from God. And that is exactly what the evil one would like to do with you. To rob you of him, remember? To rob you of the abundant life that is found in Jesus and he would love for you and your shame and insecurity to not run towards God, but to run from God. And I also want you to understand this, that just as he plays the long game with his temptations, he plays the long game with his condemnation and his accusations. He sets you up. There's a um, counselor who's got a, 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 pro, a podcast that I have been sewing this, trying to sow in the midst of our church for a number of years. It's called The Place We Find Ourselves by a counselor named adam young looked up i don't agree with everything adam young says but in regards to pastoral counsel and wisdom he has a whole like seven part on understanding what it looks like in the very nuances and the crevices and the cracks of your life to see the work of, of the devil's condemnation and accusation and he said this that the accusations of the evil one will have a fittedness to you and to your story That just as he has been shaping your story for a long time, you can see his temptation has an arc in the same way his condemnation has an arc. The scheme of the evil one against your heart has been strategic and consistent and intentional over the course of your life. And so you need to ask yourself, how do the accusations that are leveled against you today have a fittedness to your story? And what you might find is that that voice of accusation has been there for a very, very long time. Adam Young talks, talks about the woman who's been struggling with her, her weight for her whole life. And he goes back and he points out from the places from her youth, seven, eight, nine years old, in which dad made a flippant comment. And in junior high, the design of her body and the shame took hold. And the evil one just pounds away. Tap, tap, tap. Like Chinese water torture. Now again, how old are your accusations? And the portions of the accusation, it might be true. He might accuse you of certain sins that, guess what? You did commit. Sometimes the whole accusation is true, but here's where discernment is important. To learn to discern the voice of the evil one versus the voice of the spirit. The voice of the evil one has a tone of what? Condemnation. The voice of the spirit has a voice of conviction. God's confrontations, though they are disciplinary, they are kind. And they're compassionate. The Satan's voice drives you from God. God. And pushes you away from community and robs you of joy and undercuts your energy for seeking holiness. The Spirit's voice drives you towards God and into deeper community and into tear filled joy and into a delight to pursue holiness. Their tones are different. And so, what is the one two punch? Do you see how it works? Satan uses temptation and accusation in a complimentary way. The evil one deceives you into doing his bidding. He gets you to do what he wants, but then having deceived you into sin, he then condemns you for the very act he told you you should commit. Before you sin, the evil evil one comes to you and says, go ahead, it's no big deal. Everybody else does it. You won't get caught. Who really cares? It is your life. But afterwards, he comes with the voice of, look at you, you're so pathetic, you're no good, God doesn't love you, God will never use you again, you've gone too far, before your sin he lies, and then after your sin he lies again, because condemnation is a lie, he's calling what Jesus did on the cross and what God says over you a lie, so how do we fight this? Well, listen, this is rather demoralizing. Two straight weeks of cosmic war and the tactics of the evil one. We've spent all of our time this morning looking at this as well. Where's the defense? Well, here I have good news. We're setting all this up because for the rest of the summer we're going to look at the defense. We're starting two weeks. We're going to look at what it means to stand and give an overview. But today, let me just leave you with this. The third thing I want you to see is the disarming of the enemy. Yes, he has a strategy. And yes, he has profound, winsome, unbelievably cunning tactics, but there is one who disarms the enemy. For the Christian, the point I'm getting across here is the devil has been rendered impotent. Impotent. I thought about using the word neutered because my dog got neutered this week, and so it was on my mind, but disarming is the more biblical term. But what am I trying to say? Is I have rendered my dog impotent, and that is a good thing, and Jesus has rendered the evil one impotent as well. How does he disarm, how does he disarm the evil one and his, his forces? We're going to look at a number of passages here. Hang on. 1 Corinthians 5, 15 verse 56 says this. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. So what is he, how does he deal with death and sin? It says this Then Colossians 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, but God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, and therefore he disarmed. He took their bullets away. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them In Him, Do you understand? The law incites your anti-desire against God. And the evil one is happy to use the law or the anti-law, whichever way, in order to cite you, incite you to sin. And then having succeeded in leading us into sin, he then pronounces our condemnation, our unworthiness before God, and our worthiness of death. And guess what? The sting of the condemnation is because it is true. It's true, you are worthy of death and hell and separation from God. We are sinners and we have rejected God. We have sinned against him, but what happens if someone comes and fulfills the law on your behalf? The law is silenced. And what happens if he takes your sin upon himself and he takes the wrath of death and separation from God the Father, if he takes that upon himself? Then the rulers are disarmed. That's the bullet in the gun. Jesus took away your sin, and he took away it disarmed all that stood against us. Do you see the evil one has been defanged? The poison of his bite has struck the heel of another, not your heel. And he can no longer do harm because he has crushed his head. Jesus came to take away the power of the devil's work. He had to do what? He had disarmed the evil one. And he has now gone to war. So the evil one, while yes... He brings a gun, and it has gunpowder in it, but it has no bullets. Yes, it can make a loud noise, and yes, it is very scary, and yes, it is threatening, and yes, it can make you jump, but the power of death has been taken from him. And that's why Paul then says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And what does that victory mean for you and I today? Paul ends, he constantly ends at the same place. If Jesus is victorious, what does that mean for you and I? Verse 58, it's 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. Stand firm. Be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain because you have a victor. You have a champion who stands beside you and whose death In resurrection and in his ascension, you may now stand. Stand firm, then. No one in Christian history seemed to appropriate his victory and the truths of it better, with greater ferocity than Martin Luther. Here's what he said When the devil throws your sins in your face and declares to you that you deserve death and hell, tell him this I admit it, I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know the one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. So you stand and fight, and you fight back. And that's what we're going to look at week in and week out this summer. James 4 says this Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and what will happen to the devil? He will flee. Submit to God means Christ is my champion. I'm not submitting to my own righteousness. I'm submitting to his righteousness and to his call and to his victory. And then we can look at the other one and we can say, You do your worst. You do your worst. Ray Cortez is a pastor in Florida and he had a man in his church who he had led to the Lord. But the man, he led this man to the Lord in the face of this man's terminal illness. He had cancer. And he had come to believe, and the man was dying. And this young believer knew that within weeks he would close his eyes for the last time. And the man said this to Ray, sometimes I feel as if the devil is sitting on my shoulder and he is whispering in my ear, it can't be that easy that Jesus just paid it all. It can't be that you actually have the righteousness of Christ. And he said this, I feel like the devil tells me you don't measure up. You don't actually believe in God. You're simply grasping onto him because you're about to die. And the friend asked Ray, what what do I say what do I say back to these voices? And, Paul, and and Ray pulled his friend close and he whispered in his ear, he said this, tell him to go straight to hell. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know my own fear in preaching this um, is my own Proclivity to follow the temptations of the evil one, <laughs> and that as as we as we speak about spiritual warfare this summer, that it's only going to intensify the fight. So, heavenly Father, as we become more aware of the fight in our lives, as as we begin to see um, the story that He is seeking, the story of lives that He is seeking to weave into our life. I pray that we would not grow despondent. But that actually, Lord, that his own attacks and our own feeling of weakness would do the exact opposite of what he wants. That he would cause us to, to run more readily to our Savior. And that in him we would find our champion and our victor. So would you do that as we're attacked this week as the evil one whispers? That we would learn even at begin now what it looks like to, to preach the truth, to take on the, the, the shield of faith and the gospel of peace. Would you do that in us this summer and teach us to stand firm? We pray this in Christ's name, amen.